Hello, everyone. My name is Robert Winfrey, and what you're about to listen to is an old episode of a podcast I used to host called Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. This particular episode originally aired October 4th, 2013. It was part of my first Halloween season hosting Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, so somewhat naturally, it was devoted to a lot of various horror villains. This particular episode had a focus on slasher villains, uh, most notably perhaps Jason Voorhees, Michael Myers... Leatherface, those kinds of uh, characters. Somewhat notable in his absence for this particular discussion is one Freddy Krueger. That's because there's a there's an entire episode dedicated specifically to Freddy Krueger, given his just not just the length of his franchise, but his personality. There's a lot to, that you can kind of unpack with Freddy in particular, whereas most of the other silent kind of slasher villains don't lend themselves to tremendous amounts of in-depth discussion. So, he, Freddy Krueger is absent. The episode involving him in particular will be uploaded in the future, or re-uploaded at some point. My guest for this particular episode is Sean Comer. Sean and I had done a long road to ruin couple of episodes on the Hellraiser franchise. He and I would get together to talk about some stuff like this on occasion. He is still a frequent collaborator and member of the Radulich and Broadcasting Network. I uh, heard in the On Trial series with Mark Radulich, whenever they do occasional Long Road to Ruin episodes, you can find him there as well. And in a plug I will go ahead and do for him, you can find him streaming on Twitch, if you do the Twitch streaming thing, at Comer Codex. So if you're interested in what Sean brings to the table here and think you might enjoy that, please feel free to drop him a follow and check out his stream on occasion. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, that's my plugs for that. So before we throw this all the way back to 2013, let's pay a few bills. First up, uh, let's talk about Grammarly, one of our great sponsors here. For you listeners of the Radulich and Broadcasting Network, or the W2M Network, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, and spelling mistakes while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network. Again, that, uh, that's getgrammarly.com slash W2M Network to download Grammarly for free. Contextual errors will kill you, people. And I don't say that as a pun because we're talking about slashers. They really are the worst. Our other sponsor for this particular episode is Amazon Music, and it's somewhat appropriate. Horror movies have some, the good ones, have great soundtracks, some truly phenomenal ones. In fact, you're going to hear at the opening of this particular episode a bit of the very iconic Hell, uh, Hellraiser Halloween theme. Although the Hellraiser soundtrack doesn't get talked about enough, but it's a really good one. There are some genuinely phenomenal horror-themed scores out there, so... Uh, if you'd like to find any of those, they're on almost certainly on Amazon. Amazon has a very, very extensive library of streaming music. Uh, 70 million songs, probably more at this point. Uh, I, I know some of those cycle up and through, but, oh, geez, so much. If you're interested in that, you can, uh, you can get a free 30 days of Amazon Music on us. Go to getamazonmusic.com slash w2mnetwork. Uh, fill out the little form they send you, and that will let them know that we're the ones that sent you there. It helps us, it helps you, it helps them. You get a free 30 days of Amazon Music. If you don't like it at the end of the 30 days, feel free to ditch it. If you do like it, well, you're more than welcome to keep it. But 
that helps us out. They're willing to they're willing to sponsor these particular shows, and it helps us if you use those links. So please do so. And with that out of the way, let me throw it back to myself and Sean Comer in 2013, talking about slasher villains because aren't they just a gas? Past me, it's all on you. <laughs> something a little different, a little mute, a little mood music for everybody out there. That is, of course, the very famous score to the movie, to John Carpenter's Halloween. And since we're kicking off October here on Everyone Loves a Bad Guy, and as far as October goes, we're focusing on horror bad guys, so I figured that little bit of eerie music would be appropriate. Oh, excuse me. And, well, what are we doing here? I just told you, we're talking about horror-themed bad guys for the month of October because, hey, it's October and it fits. Why not? I am your host. I am the villainous one. I like doing this. I am Robert Winfrey, and I'm very glad you're all able to join me, listening live or recorded at your convenience. Either way, I'm just glad you're listening because I don't do this just to hear myself talk. I can do that without broadcasting it to everybody else and making their lives a bit more difficult. Okay, so how are we starting off Halloween month, the month of October, horror month. I'm going to, just just a heads up everybody, there's a good chance I'm going to refer to it as Halloween month more than once because that's just kind of where my head's at right now. So be aware of that. Um, I was 
hoping that Sean Comer would show up here tonight. He and I discussed this a little bit, but he's not here yet. I'm hoping he's just run. Uh, I'm hoping he's just running a little bit late, and he will show up eventually. If not, uh, well, that would kind of suck because I've kind of laid this out in preparation for two people. But if I need to stretch it out, I can stretch. Because hey, I I'm great at hearing myself talk. I can do that all day. But we're kicking things off with a bang, talking about horror bad guys, and we're starting big. We're starting with uh, some of the biggest ones, actually. We're starting off with Slash and various slasher bad guys, because there's a lot of them, and in particular, we're not skipping them, folks. Tonight, I, Sean and I, hopefully, we, there will be a discussion about the two big slasher icons. That's right, Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees. It's a double whammy tonight, folks, because I love them both, and they're both very, very similar. So we're going to talk about them in addition to all of the other slasher bad guys, because there's a fair amount of them, too. And a lot of them are very fun. They have some fun movies, there's some fun bad guys, all kinds of fun to be had. I don't know how many of you listened in to the Long Road to Ruin uh, Scream podcast series, of which I guest start on, and I would encourage you, but there was a bit of a discussion there about slasher movies movies in general and how the screen in particular the first screen movie revitalized the genre not just the slasher genre the horror genre because that was the 90s ladies and gentlemen when scream came out uh, 1990 i think it was or 92 early in there not a good year for horror not a good year for horror there were some real real down in that particular decade so but Scream revitalized it and it did so with a slasher style move and we discussed a little bit there to kind of get back on track where the slasher movies started, some of the influences of them, and believe it or not, I'm fairly sure there are thesis papers out there that doctoral candidates at various schools have used that that have discussed the slasher movie and the the whole subgenre as far as that goes. So when when you discuss when, you know, the early influences, there's a fair amount of them that get talked about. Uh, If you want to go way back, uh, there was one in the 30s called 13 Women that was, that was, you know, an early forerunner to slasher movies. You had uh, Psycho's a fairly well-known one that was kind of a forerunner of the slasher genre. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola's first movie, actually, Dementia 13, which is a fun little one if you've never had the chance to look it up, uh, was also kind of a forerunner to the slasher subgenre of movie. Oh, sorry. I think something went down the wrong pipe there. And... But slasher, as a, as a general rule, it's also a very interesting subgenre of horror movies because it's not straight splatter or gore movies. There are plenty of those, and don't get me wrong, I tend to err on the gorehound side. Of, uh, I absolutely, personally, really loved the uh, Evil Dead remake or sequel reboot. I mean, there's a lot of discussion about where the latest Evil Dead movie falls within that particular mythology and timeline, but. I enjoyed it a whole lot, and so, and if any of you saw it, you know it's yeah. There's some gore in there, a fair amount of it, and it, and I just, you know, so I don't mind gore. I can err on the, I tend to err on the gorehound side of things. I love tension and atmosphere probably more, but I suppose it's easier to be forgiving of a gory movie that fails because you still get the gore as opposed to an atmospheric-based movie that fails in generating atmosphere because then you're left with pretty much nothing. So I don't know, maybe those, but there are. You know, splatter film that, you know, for one, is is kind of the term used for them. One of the more famous ones being Blood Feast from 63. There's actually an interesting uh, sub-piece on that. If you've ever seen the documentary uh, Red, White, and Blue, it's uh, I think it's called that. It's a documentary look at American horror, which is 
markedly different from other countries. Each country has its own version of horror, their own tropes, their own devices that they like to use a whole lot. And uh, this, that one looks at the evolution of American horror, and they talk a fair amount about Blood Feast and an interesting little piece on it. But most slasher movies, you know, once there's once the subgenre had defined itself, you get and. Uh, for that reason, you know, the first real slash that gets discussed a lot is Black Christmas. No, not the remake. The remake sucked. Don't bring that one up. It's not good. The original 1974 Black Christmas. Uh, fun little sub-story. The director of that also directed the Christmas classic A Christmas Story. So, nice to see some range out of a director. But a lot of what Black Christmas brought to slasher genre that it borrowed in some respects and then innovated in some others. It's a lo- It's a centralized location. You're just in the house. You and one of the things it borrows from is you look at the you get some of the first person you know, killer perspective photos or shots, not photos, which would become you know, kind of famous throughout you know, other slasher movies. You see a lot from Michael Myers' perspective in Halloween, from uh, Miss, both Mrs. Voorhees and Jason Voorhees in the first few Friday the Thirteenth films, and giving you, you know, putting you in the killer's shoes as far as that goes was a ver- was one of the things that again it was it was borrowed in some respects because Peeping Tom, one of the earlier you know forerunners of the slasher subgenre, did that too. But the other things that Black Christmas introduced were the score which is, an, is a hugely important... I can't emphasize enough how important score is, especially in horror movies. Uh, you'll be hearing me talk a bit more in depth about that in the upcoming Long Road to Ruin when we discuss the Hellraiser franchise. But slasher genres tend to feature a very jarring, very block-chord-based score, which gets under your skin. It takes you... It sets its own rhythm. It kind of takes you out of its comfort zone. I'm clearly not a music expert, so I'm just going off of my own feelings about it there. And it's a very... It's just a hugely important part, especially in... Of any movie. You know, any movie that has a good score is inherently bolstered by it, as opposed to other movies which can be pulled back by it. And... Uh, anyway, so Black Christmas is... Yeah. Use the jolting score. Use that chord bass. Again, very harsh chord, block chord. Some music theory teacher I had referred to them as and they're very great for you know, dramatic effects for building ten- you know for building tension for releasing tension as the case may be and it was one of the first to use that as well and again that became a hugely important role in all of the other slasher movies to come but it, one of the reasons I definitely wanted to talk about Halloween and Friday the 13th here is prior to John Carpenter's Halloween, the 1978, the slasher villains tended to be one and they would... Sh- and e- even after that, I mean, uh, again, Halloween and Halloween 2, both very both very successful, but a lot of them were still, again, one and done as far as the Villains Villains podcast were going to kind of focus on that. Still had fun movies, and in some cases you had really fun villains. I mean, again, the original Black uh, the original Black Christmas has a very fun villain. Uh, you know, again, as far as slasher villains go, uh, My Bloody Valentine had a pretty good one. Again, there's... And uh, The Burning, Sleepaway Camp. Sleepaway Camp, of course, the famous ending sequence, which if you haven't seen it, look it up on... Uh, you should see the whole movie in general, but... You know, to under, fa- what Sleepaway Camp is kind of famous for is that closing sequel. And of course, Sleepaway Camp did get some sequels as well. But again, a lot of these were just, you know, it was one and done. It was, if you've seen the great, great little piece of cinema, uh, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, when he, when he and the film crew are talking with their, with Leslie's mentor, 
Uh, played by Herschel, you, for anybody who, any Walking Dead fans out there, same actor that plays Herschel plays his mentor. I forget his name from the movie. But he mentioned specifically that, you know, in my day it was you get in, you cause as much damage as you can, and you get out, which was very much the kind of filmmaking methodology there. And then it wasn't until Halloween and Halloween 2 that you got a slasher villain who came back more than one, who showed up for the first one and then showed up for the sequel, and that was a very different concept for a bad guy again these slasher villains early on were again some of them were quite fun and they tended to include an element of who done it who was the killer and who can we trust which they borrowed from kind of the italian gallio films which which is good i mean there were some great films over there actually the sec, any of the second friday the 13th movie has some like almost shot for shot remakes of killings from one of Dario Argento uh, movies, which and Dario Argento, absolutely phenomenal director, great at as far as the Italian uh, Gallo films go, Argento has just some really great stuff, inventive kills, score. Just, I could talk about him for a while, but I'm not here to talk about him. We're talking about bad guys, and since we want to, since I kind of opened the door here with Michael Myers, let's keep going with Michael Myers because Michael Myers again, he broke the mold in a lot of ways in that he was alive. At the end of the film, he came back for the second and the third. I think it was the third, at least. I have some of my Halloween movies mixed up. I, I think it was... I can't remember if it was the third or the fourth that was Season of the Witch. Uh, it was three that was Season of the Witch. Four was Return of Michael Myers. Okay. Yay. Good job on me for looking that up. But again, he came back, and they came up with some interesting ways to explain that with him being, you know, the shape and all. And Michael Myers is such... Even just for the first one, if you look at the first Halloween movie and forget the sequels, which some people would like to do, if you just look at that, he is such a interesting character, which is odd because he doesn't say anything. He doesn't really... I mean, when the actor who portrayed Michael Myers famously asked John Carpenter in one scene, okay, what's my motivation in this sequence? And John Carpenter looked at him and said, your motivation is to walk. He's a very, you know, Michael Myers doesn't do a whole lot other than look at people in creepy ways and kill them. His interest and the fascinating stuff about him tends to come from Dr. Loomis, played by the great Donald Pleasance in original Halloween movies and then done a fairly good amount of justice by Ian McDowell in Rob Zombie's one and two remakes, or... And he, the way he talks about him is just, you know, flat, he's emotionless, he's waiting for a chance to get out. I mean, Loomis's speech about Michael Myers to the sheriff, John Carpenter's Halloween is just phenomenal for setting up what a, you know, what he is and what he represents. I mean, when Laurie Strode at the end of the movie says he, he was the boogie, I mean, that's really, that's really very true to what Michael Myers is. I mean, Halloween also kind of introduced the concept of the invincible slasher villain i mean the others again they tended to go away at the end of their movie whether again whether they were killed cap usually they were killed i mean this is horror we're talking about ladies and gentlemen but they could be hurt they could be you know stabbed shot in and then michael myers comes along and he gets shot he gets stabbed he gets hit over the head and he just never stopped getting up and coming forward and i mean even at the end after dr loomis shoots him like five or six times in the chest he falls out of a second story balcony lands flat on his back still gets up and walks away and it's just the way that john carpenter was able to turn the slasher villain from just a deranged human into this force of kind of omnipresent unstoppable 
killing machine was really, really revolutionary as far as the genre went. And I brought up Michael before Jason for the simple fact that I believe without Michael Myers, there is no Jason Voorhees. Because Jason took everything that Michael Myers did and was and was able to upgrade a lot of it. Not all, not all of it, but a lot of it. I mean, of course, Michael Myers isn't actually in the Friday the 13th movie. It's his mother. And then you see a little bit of him at the end well, the cameo from Drowned Corpse that may or may not just be a, a dream from the survive from the final girl who then gets stabbed through the eye by Jason at the beginning of Friday the 13th Part 2. And from there, you know, Jason really appears and starts killing people in Part 2, and he just kind of goes on from there. But uh, you have, at, at the time, Jason physically was very different from Michael. If you watch the first two Halloween movies in particular, Michael Myers is not a very big guy. He's average height, kind of slender. He's just, you know, a crazy person powered by pure evil depending on you know, from Dr. Loomis's standpoint. Just a sociopath with no eyes, no soul, no conscience and that's a fair point. But then you have Jason who is this 6'4, 6'5, 220, 30 pounds, a very solid, very imposing figure and you get a lot of the differences there too because Michael Myers is very much especially, again, John Carpenter's version of Michael Myers, is very much a kind of finesse character. He drives a car, shows up, he infiltrates places, he shows up to kind of terrorize Laurie at the beginning, and he see him through windows, you get little glimpses of him, He's, he does stalking, he does intimidation, he does research, and then he kills you, and it's still, and he's still, again, and un, you know, when you say he's unstoppable, he does get hit a lot with, you know, again, like I said, he's been... Laurie stabs him in the eye a couple of times, he gets shot, he gets hurt, but he keeps getting up and coming back after. Jason is a very different animal in that he is this big, unstoppable juggernaut. He doesn't care too much. He has very inventive kills. I mean, that's one of the great things about Jason is you know, the way he kills people is not always the same. It tends to be in the same manner. He'll, you know, he has... Actually, interesting, just for anyone who hasn't seen the Friday the 13th movies, just a couple of minor points here. Jason does not get the hockey mask until 3 or 4. I actually want to say it's 4. He appears in 2, then 3. Yeah, I want to say it's like part 4 or 5 when he gets the hockey mask. He has, in 2, he just has a burlap bag over his head that he has eye, that he has eye. He is very disfigured. They pull out of the bag off of his face towards the end, and... Yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's pretty ugly, Ugh. which is tragically what led to those kids making fun of him and driving him into the water to drown in the back, as far as the backstory goes. But he doesn't get you know the hockey mask, and I think it's and again I think it's the one after he gets the hockey mask where he actually gets the machete. He uses a bunch of other weapons prior to that. Uh, he uses a spear in part two, uh, arrows. Not that he shoots them from a bow. No, you stupid remake movie. He does. Jason is not an arch stabs people with arrows. He has some big not big hunting knives that he uses. I mean, just all kinds of different items until, again, he finally gets the machete. And even after that, he does use other stuff as well, for better or worse. You know, there were certainly some areas that he gets it. That, no, I think it's in Jason Takes Manhattan when he decides to shoot someone with a crossbow. And, again, people, he's not an archer. And, yes, it's done at close range and does kind of make sense, but makes sense in that, oh, wait, he's close. He, of course, he can hit them. Not, hey, look, they're halfway across the lake, and I'll hit them with an arrow from the bank. The remake has just, ugh. you've missed the essence of the character there, people. But back on track, he would make, he would have inventive kills. I mean, yes, I think it was in, I think it's in Freddy vs. Jason that he folds someone in half into their uh, fold-out, fold-out, 
bed from a couch. I mean, he just... So he has, there are these really fun kills that he engaged, whereas Michael Myers, especially in the beginning, tended to be more... He, you know, he got the big kitchen knife, the big butcher's knife, and he would just have all kinds of fun with that. Or he'd kill you with his bare hands if he had the... If he, Got the chance to. But, you know, the big knife was kind of his primary weapon, and then Jason, a bit later on, got the machete, and we're off to the races as far as that goes. But my point there was, they're for as much as they're both silent, menacing, unstoppable killing machines, which is what they're supposed to, they're also very different characters, as far as even just characterization, looking at their backstories, and it's a, it's a credit, I feel, to everyone involved especially with Friday the 13th, because Halloween came first, that he wasn't just a Michael Myers ripoff. He was completely and wholly his own end. You know, again, Michael Myers would do stalking. He was again, slender, and he would use subterfuge. And Jason, not much for subterfuge. I mean, he's not a, you don't get the he will steamroll through an entire house blindly he will you know do sneak he will kind of sneak up on you i mean if he couldn't sneak up on you half the kills wouldn't be gotten because he sne- he shows up suddenly behind you and then decapitates you or stabs you through the chest or any number of various ways that jason has disposed of victims over the years and there's been a lot of them and these are two these are two characters with high body Ugh, sorry about that and michael myers is I kind of want to talk about him for a little bit because John Carpenter even described him as just kind of the personification of, you know, there's not a, you know, there's not a lot of motivation, there's not a lot of depth as far as, you know, if you're an actor playing him, just show up and kill people. I mean, I think probably the most direct, I think the most direction John Carpenter ever gave the guy playing Michael Myers in the first movie was after his... There's a scene, I forget which boyfriend, but he stabs a boyfriend, he lifts a boyfriend off the ground, stabs him through the chest with the big kitchen knife and actually impales him to the wall behind it and he just kind of hangs there and then he kind of cocks his head to the side a few times looking at him and kind of studying him and, and john carpenter told him i want you to you know cock your head to the side kind of like you're examining something odd and michael myers was just designed to be pure evil sociopath nothing going on in the brain you know, not a whole lot going on as far as you know high functionality and that was actually a fairly large bone of contention with Rob Zombie's Halloween remake because in the original uh, the opening sequence is actually him killing his older sister while wearing his Halloween clown costume with again the butcher knife out of the kitchen knife block then just kind of walking outside meeting his parents and just kind of going catatonic for the next several years I forget exactly but you know again 20 years or so when he finally shows back up he escapes the mental hospital steals a car and wishes to resume killing people, which, you know, hard to blame him for that some days. And he's, again, and especially when you get into some of the further Halloween episodes, Halloween movies, where they kind of, where they try to explain why. If you saw, again, if you listen to the Paranormal Activity podcast, uh, Sean Comer made the remark that Halloween goes off the rails once you start trying to explain Michael Myers. And there's a fair amount of legitimacy to that particular claim. A lot Those movies tend to be fine, the season of the witch kind of iffy, but when you get into four and five, and there's the whole cult based around Myers, and he becomes, he's not Michael Myers anymore, he... They start recognizing him as the shape, which is just this personification of evil that these people have brought to life in the form of Michael Myers. Some of his family, because he has, you know, 
the niece who has like a psychic connection with him and the whole thing gets horrifyingly convoluted and especially in horror the adage less is more is very apt you know we don't need to know everything about Michael Myers we don't need to know how he escapes or why he's impervious to pain why you can't kill him you know he's just fine kind of as the symbol of pure evil as opposed to being explained away and again convoluted the simplest things tend to be the scariest ladies and gentlemen and if you don't believe me once they watch the halloween movies once they start trying to explain michael myers because a lot of his menace and a lot of the scary stuff around him goes away of course, it also goes away because they start shifting. This is another problem with a lot of slasher villains as time goes on. They stop being villains. They start being written as anti. You have, you know, the witch coven that wants Michael Myers. You have the people who think it's a good idea to resurrect Jason. And you want these people to die. So you're rooting for Jason or Michael to kill these because they're stupid and they're the real bad guys. And these poor innocent mass murdering monsters are just you know they're uh, they're just other victims and as fun as that can be at times it's just ugh, it just has some issues and that's one of the things that Jason didn't suffer as much from as as much especially as much as Michael Myers did once they because you got all of Jason's relevant backstory within the first two movies in the first movie he was a kid who was disfigured, physically deformed, like a, his face is not pretty. And again, kids can be some of the cruelest things there are, so he was teased, tormented, driven into the lake by these kids, and a couple of camp counselors were too busy getting it on to pay attention to any of this, and he drowned, that drove Mrs. Voorhees crazy, and because Jason didn't actually drown, it kind of, and, you know, he eternally sought then, which is fair enough, I mean, that, that would probably piss me off too, in all fairness, and I think most of you would agree. But the point with Jason there is, he's starts becoming they never try to explain why he's seemingly indestructible of course they follow that up by just bringing him back every other movie with you know via odd means like lightning strike things of that or you know people in space who think it's a good idea to thaw him out and revive him and put him on display and yeah jason x folks you want to see a monument to stupidity look at the people who think it's a good idea to revitalize, to bring back, to dig up, to thaw out Jason Voorhees. Just not a good idea. I mean, with a, with a lot of the other times that Jason gets revived, you you know, it, it's it, there's always stupidity that leads to it. But at least there's degrees of understandable stupidity. I mean, in one of them, you have the stupid teenagers who don't believe, who, oh, hey, there, there's Jason, he's buried there, let's go dig him up, that'll be fun. And he then gets struck by lightning and revived. You have, oh, I forget the character's name, I want to say Todd, who was, res the kid who was responsible for killing Jason, who needs to see him to believe that he's dead because he started having nightmares. And, I mean, again, that's pretty stupid, especially if he's already managed to survive Jason once. But, but again, there's understandable stupidity as far as, hey, look, they're, they're stupid drunk teenagers. Would they dig up a local horror legend because they don't think it's real? Yeah, I'll buy that. And, yes, they're going to die for it, which is fine and dandy. Stupid drunk teenagers dying is always good, folks. Especially if Jason gets to cut them in half with a machete. But when you get, again, to like Jason X, where, hey, look, it's a good idea to thaw him out and revive him for the sake of making uh, of a publicity stunt. It's kind of how what it wound up being. And no, that's not a good idea, and you deserve to die. But, you, but the point there being, you're a fully grown adult. You should know this is a bad idea. If you're a drunk teenager, your brain's not fully formed, and you're inebriated. You're inhibiting your ability to think with chemicals. Not a good idea in the first place. 
but at least that is something that a stupid drunk teenager would do. Would an intelligent human being decide it's a good idea to revive and thaw out Michael Myers? Even for money? I mean, come on. That's just stupid. And they all pay the consequences for it, thankfully. They all die, which makes me happy. Stupid people dying, I find to be a good... But again, the point I was making there is that... And you even have copycats of Jason in a couple of movies, as you wear big suits and march. The point there being, they don't try to explain away Jason the way they try to explain Michael. Michael Myers is just a force of evil with a little backstory in that he was a kid. He was just born, you know, without a conscience, without a soul, however you want to phrase it. He was born that way, and now he is that way. And you don't need a lot of exposition as far as, well, here's the reason why he's indes here's the reason why he's indestructible. Here's the reason, you know, it's just not necessary, and it detracts so much from the overall story. And believe it or not, that was one of the re things I actually enjoyed about Rob Zombie's remake of the first Halloween, he didn't try to explain away Michael Myers with oh, apocalyptic cults and witch covens and all the weird stuff that entered into the Halloween mythos. And I know there are some people who mentioned that uh, maybe you who have brought the point up that uh, he became a serial killer like that because his father was horrible. And if you've ever, well, stepfather, I think, technically. If you've ever seen Rob Zombie's remake, uh, never remember the actor's name, but the guy they have playing the stepfather is a horrible human being. Verbally and physically abusive, he drinks all the time, the home life is broken. But if you pay attention to the movie instead of just looking at the basics, that's not what made Michael Myers Michael Myers. It's not what made him evil. It contributed. He was already displaying sociopathic tendencies. He liked finding and hurting small animals. It, he, you know, there's the... Uh, I wish I could remember all three things, but there's an episode of Criminal Minds where they discuss the factors that go into making a... I forget the third one, but two of the important ones are biological and the environment that a person is raised in and lives in. And Michael Myers, in that, from my understanding, and again, I can't remember the third one, so you'll have to forgive me for that, but here he is. He's born with some of the biological predispositions. Even with that, if the other two criteria are not, or two of the three, depending, are not met, you can still wind up with a person who is okay to live and exist and function within society. That's just kind of the nature of how it goes. Here you have one of the the important aspects is, especially for serial killing, is biological predisposition. There are brain paths, there are chemicals, there's neuroscience going on that gives people a predisposition to kill other people. However, if that you know if the neurology is not reinforced via environmental factors like, say, an abusive father who fosters hatred amongst his children, or an absentee mother who's a stripper, and just all the other horrible family life scenarios that Michael had to deal with, he wouldn't have turned out the way he but but that doesn't again, I'm not that doesn't explain away my he's not oh wait, he's not the way he is because his father was now there's a lot of factors that go into creating someone like that. And I actually appreciated that Rob Zombie took the time to he didn't take an easy out he actually bothered to look at what might lead to someone lit being like michael myers is and he did a pretty good job of looking at it and it's not and again that doesn't make michael myers less intimidating you know the fact that he came from a broken home does not necessarily make him a sympath you know sympathetic it just helps you see what the factors that led to him being the way he is and that's very different than oh wait he's actually the embodiment of evil we've channeled 
dark magic into him, and now he's the shape, and he's unstoppable. And I know that people don't like the way that Rob Zombie approached that, but I, for one, appreciated it. I'm not saying the movie's perfect, okay? I'm not going to defend certain aspects of Rob Zombie's reimagining of Halloween, because he cast the most whiny, unsympathetic girl possible to play Laurie, and it, ugh, that... There were ca- there were some casting errors and there were errors. It's not a perfect film. I enjoyed it, and there are elements of it that, and certainly again, there are some elements that I enjoyed. That doesn't mean I'm defending the movie and say, I'm not saying how dare you think it's bad. You know, there are bad things. There are flaws within the film. I personally don't feel that looking at some of the events that led to the creation of Michael Myers within the realm of how he was raised as a child is one of them. I don't find that to be a weak. I don't think they're just explaining it away. I think they're providing some insight, and there is a difference. And I feel it's an important distinction as well. Because, again, there are times when you try to explain things away or you try to say, here, this is why X happened as opposed to just providing insight, which is what I felt Rob Zombie did very well. And, of course, his my, version of Michael Myers physically resembled Jason a lot more, which, again, had, you know, if you're a purist, I suppose that's a negative. It didn't bother me as much because he was still... he's Michael Myers is scary. I mean, as long as he's not Vern Troyer, and no offense to Vern Troyer, but as long as he's not Vern Troyer, he's still going to be scary. And, actually, Vern Troyer as a serial killer would be interesting because... You know, he can hide places that you couldn't possibly see him coming from. So, there you go, Hollywood. There, there's my constant Hollywood thought pool for horror movies. Vern Troyer as a serial killer. In a slasher movie where he gets to crawl through air ducts and hide under tape and hide under beds and whatnot. You, can, you know, if you got a big person, he could hide within you. I'm just saying, Vern Troyer, slasher, serial killer. If he's up for it, I think... But again, to get back to my point, Michael Myers now being big and heavy in a manner similar to Jason Voorhees was not... It was kind of a lateral move for me. Didn't hurt, didn't help all that. But it was not the worst thing in the world. And you know, in some ways, it's you know, it's a lateral move. There are pluses and minuses to each physical version of Michael Myers. And it was, it's one of the things that makes that made Jason so interesting and so such a imposing character was his physicality. Because again, you had Michael Myers around who at the time again smaller, slender. You had Freddy. After a while, I mean, it would be wrong to not talk about Freddy Krueger. And we will, ladies and gentlemen. He will get his own podcast. Uh, I believe November 1st, day after Halloween, is a Friday, so we'll wrap up our horror bad guys with a look at Freddy Krueger. Unless something strange comes up, in which case, he will. Ma- I will make sure he gets his own podcast within this particular stream of things, because Freddy's awesome. But, again, Freddy Krueger is very physically different. He was a very short, very slender character, and he had a whole... He actually, had, and again, when you get into the mythology, he had a bunch of different attributes than Jason did, just in addition to just physically. But Jason was the big, hulking, unstoppable juggernaut, and turning Michael Myers a little into that was—I don't think it hurt it. And yeah, those. So again, I think both Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees fall into a category where they have such. You have good backstory provided by the right character, so that you don't need a lot of exposition. And there, and the other thing about the other thing that they have going for them is great characterization. You know, you see, you see Jason Voorhees walking down the street, no matter who. Actually, under the mask, though, it should be Kane Hodder forever and for always. I feel, and you know instantly what's going on with him. You know what's going on, and ditto Michael Myers in a lot of ways. He has the weird clown mask, the, I mean, again, the first, 
in the first Halloween, he's got a oh, like a work cover, like a work coverall that he wears. It's you know one piece, and again, you just you can see him, and you instantly know you know kind of what's going on. You know he's not a good person. You can see the bad things kind of coming on the horizon just by looking at them, which is a very important part of what those guys were able to accomplish as far as just movies. I mean. Those two, like I said, they basically rewrote how slasher movies were done in a lot of ways. You know, having the slasher go from kind of the one-and-done character to you know, look, eyeing, I think a lot of slasher and horror movies following Halloween is, in some cases more specifically following Friday the 3rd, especially like 2 and 3, were aimed at generating a franchise out of them as opposed to just, you know, again, one-and-done, which a lot of them were prior to that. And again, you still had some fun one and done. But a lot of them, it felt like they had, their eyes were on, okay, can we create an interesting character and how many more movies can we get out of? I mean, you got, you know, again, A Nightmare on Elm Street, which came out in 1984, I felt was, a, you know, I, again, within that type of vein. I mean, I know Wes Craven wasn't big on making a lot more of them. But, you know, again, when you create a character like Freddy, the eye has to be on, can we do more of these? And and uh, it's just, and again, a lot of them, you also got, you know, following that, you had Child's Play, which spawned, you know, again, a bunch of sequels. Some not so good. A lot of them not so good, point if we get into it. Um, Candyman was kind of in the same vein. You had these slashers where their desire is, how you know, can we create more? Can we start a franchise? Can we get movies seven and eight out of this character and this concept. And, I mean, if you don't necessarily believe me, look at, you know, the revitalization of the slasher genre with Scream. Because when they made the Scream movies, the second one was, you know, kind of already in production. They rushed it through. And, again, if you listen to the Long Road to Ruin Scream podcast, which I would encourage you to look up, we talk about why them rushing it was such a bad idea and all of the issues that it led to, because there were a lot of them. But you can see, you know, again, you can see that you know they're aiming for more than one. They're aiming for you know, two or three, at least three movies. Seems to be like the general goal is you got to at least get three movies out of any given idea, especially for a slash. And a lot of that goes back to Michael and Jason because they're the first ones that kind of did it. They're the ones that said, you know, we're going to do more than one movie. We're going to get a character here that is interesting to watch. No one's paying money to see, you know, Jason Voorhees act or the acting that goes into that character. You want to see him kill people in vile and creative ways. But you when you create an iconic character like Jason or like Michael, even as a bad guy, which is what they should be the whole time, you're aiming for more than one move. And part of the problem with some of the later entries into both of those franchises was as I mentioned before, they kind of turned them into ants because they've been going so long and these iconic characters you know, you're paying to see them kill people, so I suppose the thought process there is, well, maybe they'll pay to see them kill the real bad guys, because this is Hollywood, so we need to have clear good guy and clear bad guy, so we have the evil cult that Michael Myers gets to turn on, we have all of the stu- you know all of these stupid people that keep bringing back Jason that you now wish him to kill, and uh and again, turning serial killers into anti-heroes is just, I don't feel it was the right way to go with them. I mean, again, there's a reason for it. These are very popular characters, so always casting them as the bad guy is, again, to the minds of a Hollywood executive, I suppose, always casting a popular character as the bad guy is just a mistake, even though that's what they're supposed to. But, I mean, again, there's just a lot of that as far as slashers go. 
And you can always tell the good slasher villains from the others because they tended to get more of them. That's why, you know, you get Ghostface coming back more than one. You get Freddy, you get Michael, you get Jason. They get lots of movies there, and you get to see them kind of evolve. And again, a lot of times they wind up being anti-heroes, so you can feel good about cheering for them because they're killing the real bad guys instead of being the real bad guys. And that whole movement is just something I'm not especially fond of. Um, then, oh, wow. I feel stupid. I can't believe I almost forgot about leather. Uh, okay, brief confession, ladies and gentlemen. I do not care for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. The remakes, the originals, the interim movies, including the one with Matthew McConaughey, which provides me with another reason to hate him. And yes, Matthew McConaughey... I don't hate you as much as others, but boy, howdy, do I hate some of your movies. In fact, when I rate bad movies, ladies and true story, if any of my friends come to me and ask me if my opinion of a movie and I hate it, I give it McConaughey hat. If it's good, it gets stars. If it's bad, it gets McConaughey. Unless it's absolutely god-awful, in which case it gets the Ben Stiller. But yes, I've, I rate bad movies based on how many McConaughey heads they get. Fun time. Okay, just... Got a brief note from Sean Comer there. Uh, turns out we had a little bit of a scheduling mishap here, which, no problem. Uh, he's going to be doing a bunch of short video vlogs talking about the Hellraiser franchise, because there's a few of those that deserve their own rants. And the revelations I'm looking at, so he, yeah, he's going to be doing that for a few days. Hopefully we'll get that sorted. We'll get the scheduling sorted out, and we won't have an issue next time. So my apologies to everyone who was looking forward to hearing Sean Comer and I talk about slasher villains. Instead, you get me for, oh, 60 minutes and change, probably by the time this is done. And again, hopefully we'll have this sorted out, and Sean will be back here next week when we're going to... Uh, at the moment I have scheduled for next week, we'll be talking about haunted locations, since we're sticking with horror themes. Nothing beats a good haunted house story when it's done properly, and various other haunted locations. It's not always houses. Sometimes it's hotels, sometimes it's cemeteries, spaceships. A lot of different locations can be haunted, so we'll be looking at haunted locations next week, and I, and I definitely hope Sean Comer will be able to join us for that. And if not, I'll have to find someone else, but I'm hoping he's able to make it next. But before I got sidetracked on that briefly, I was going to talk about Leatherface. As mentioned, I don't personally care for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. That's not a slight to them, okay? There are some very good movies that I don't personally care for. To make them less good, it just means I don't care for them personally. Thankfully, that's a distinction that I'm able to make. Yeah, some people aren't. But again, the character, you know, again, so since we're talking bad guys, Leatherface is an interesting kind of slasher villain because take, I guess, some of the accepted horror tropes and has his own little twist on them. First of all, he uses a chainsaw, hence the name, right? But when you consider that everyone else, all the other slasher villains, were using relatively simple items to do their killing. I mean, Michael tended to use the butcher knife. Not exclusively, but that was kind of his weapon of choice. Jason, famous with the machete. Again, not... I talked about it a little bit earlier, not the only weapon he uses. He'll use, you know, spears, he'll stab people with arrows, he used knives, may have even strangled a couple of people. I mean, there's other things that he will use, famous for the machete. Freddy has the knife glove, which is awesome, by the way. Don't get me wrong, but you have all of these relatively simple and easy-to-show-on-film instruments of death. And because, I mean, showing someone being stabbed from a production standpoint, is not the most difficult thing in the world to do. Showing someone hit with a chainsaw, you know, that's that's just a little bit trickier if you're, again, making a movie. You know, showing that happening and the results of a chainsaw attack, those, you know, that stuff will mess you up and will do it in brutal fashion. And showing that on screen is a difficult thing to do just from a technical standpoint. Not even talking about, you know, 
people who have to watch it and find it difficult to view. I mean, just showing someone hit with a chainsaw and making it somewhat realistic on screen is not easy. And even if you're able to do it, sometimes you, you get the issue of, well, how much I can only show this so many times. Now I have to come up with more creative ways to use the chainsaw, and it just gets more and more complicated. So you have that going for him, in that the chainsaw is... I mean, look, a machete's scary if it's coming at you, you know, the knife glove, the butcher knife, you know, all of those other implements, they're scary. Don't get me wrong. But if someone comes at you with a chainsaw, that's, uh, that's a whole other level of, oh, crap. And Leatherface had the added bonus of wearing the mask of human skin, hence Leatherface. His actual face is, he was born deformed, kind of like Jace, but instead of being sent off to day camp with other kids, he was kept within his relatively inbred West, I assume West Texas household. It could have been South Texas, too. I mean, I don't know. From where I sit, Texas is Texas. And they raised him there, and for some reason thought it was a good idea for him to kill people if they made fun of him. I'm all for standing up to, for yourself, ladies and gentlemen. Just because someone makes fun of you doesn't mean you should hit them with a chainsaw. Especially not if it's running. And Leatherface, he's another character that, again, suffered the more they tried to explain him. And the more in-depth you got. I mean, do I really have to relive... Do we, do we really have to go over the Leatherface being a cross-dresser staring up at a UFO at the end of a... I mean, come on. I don't care if that movie has pseudo-historical significance because it has... I think it was Renee Zellweger and Matthew McConaughey in it together. I can't even remember which Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie it was. Feel free to correct me. I have. I believe I have deliberately blocked it from my memory, and I feel no need to look it up because I just don't care about it. On the plus side, I will say this. when we When Hollywood went through their rash of remakes that they're still going... When they remade Texas Chainsaw Massacre, there were some things that they got better. Just a few. First of all, there was no whiny guy in a wheelchair. I could not stand his character. He aggravated me to death. I felt as a, especially early in the remake, they did a good job of establishing tension, of building it up. I mean, their finale and their climax sequence didn't even come close to touching the original. I mean, I told you I don't care for those movies, and I stand by that, but that scene where they're all around the dinner table and they stick the poor girl's finger into what looks to be a corpse's mouth and he suddenly comes to life and no, he's not actually dead, he's just really old and was probably semi-catatonic until he actually tasted blood. At which point he decided it's a good idea to smack this girl in the head with a hammer and kill her because that's how they used to slaughter hogs and that's how they used to slaughter cows too as far as that goes. But the, when that happens, it's a... It's just a beautifully done moment. It's a legitimate jump scare as far as those go. And it props to the people involved with the original for doing that. I mean, like, I, I may not care for them all that much. Like I said, that doesn't mean they're bad, and that doesn't mean there aren't good points. But Leatherface, again, you have such a useful and interesting character in the sense that he looks very different. At the same time, he's also very awkward. I mean, I think they mention him being developmentally disabled. He's a big guy. He's, he's a wide guy. He's not terribly tall, if memory serves. I, haven't, again, I don't care for the movies, so I've seen them, just to say I've seen them, by and large, and to have some research done. But I haven't rewatched them all that often. But again, he's, he's a big guy, but he's very, you know, kind of emotionally unstable. I seem to recall him being scared more than once, someone, like, startling him, and him just kind of going, you know, and then, like, hiding in the corner for me. I think it was, it was probably one of his family members who did it, how families tend to be at times. And, and so, again, you have someone who's similar in that here's a big guy with a scary weapon who's wearing a mask, so he's similar to Michael and Jason in that respect, but he's also very much his own character, not just because he uses a chainsaw and because his mask is made of, but, you know, his mask is made of human skin. He's from Texas, so he tends to be less likable. 
I'm sorry. I ugh. my experience with people from Texas has, to the best of my knowledge, never really been positive. So if I kind of rag on Texas from time to time, it's nothing personal. People from Texas, okay? I don't mean to offend any of you. I just it's just one of those things I'm gonna do. I rag on people from other states too, just as much. So please, again, don't be personally offended by it. I make fun of people from Jersey too. It's not personal. It's just me kind of pointing out idiosyncrasy. So you and again, I just I really wish they hadn't made as many of the because some of those Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies were just so bad. I mean, almost as bad as some of the Halloween movies. I mean, hey, Halloween Five: The Curse of Michael Myers. I think that's the one that I mentioned was so bad. I believe it slipped into the realm of public domain. Nobody wants to claim it. Nobody cares if you stick it in your collection of, here's 50 horror movies for five bucks at Walmart. That's how bad it is. And various Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies fall into that same category. But they are, I can appreciate the effect that they had on horror filmmaking. I don't have any problem with people who like them as a, you know, you say you like those movies, fine, and you know, I don't personally, and as long as you can respect that I don't, I'll, and I can respect that you don't, that you do, you know, we can agree to disagree and be civil. But Leatherface is a villain, very fun bad guy by and large. I mean, that final sequence of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you kind of see him running in that bad suit with the weird hair and the mask and cuts a very interesting figure, at least when he's not portrayed as being a cross-dresser. And he was a very intimidating force. I mean, again, the remake did kind of get that right and that he's now scary again after several movies of him not necessarily being scary. Again, portrayed as the anti-hero. It's a bad idea. The one time... Okay. The final bit of Mike of Freddy versus Jason, when the people being hunted by Freddy decide Jason's their best bet to defeat Freddy one way or another. Okay, that's an ex- that that I find acceptable in the sense that he's the lesser of two evils. He still kills that one annoying girl. I forget her name, both the character and the actress. Again, deliberately, there are things I have blocked from my memory, folks. And she was one of them. But at the end, he still kills her. He's still. Jace, he's still more than happy to kill a bunch of horny teenagers, because why not? He'll still barge into a big bonfire party on fire, hacking people down left and right. Even though the people, you know, the kids, uh, even though the kids are like, okay, please, beat Freddy for us, they'd still have to deal with him afterwards, because, hey, he'd still try to kill them. He is not their hero, he's just the best option in a terrible situation. And that was a... that. Plus, you know, that movie... I feel, suffers from the same problem that Alien vs. Predator. You know what that problem was? People. I would be perfectly happy with an Alien vs. Predator movie that had no humans in it. And you know what? No dialogue. Let's cut human and human language dialogue from the movie, subtitle the Predators when they're talking to each other. The aliens have always communicated, and you get it through their language because they're not big on thinking. They're more, you know centralized hive mind, like ants or various other social insects, and that the queen does the thinking, the others just kind of follow along. So we can get them communicating through other means. You can subtitle the predators if you feel the need to have them talk to each other. We don't need people. It is better to... I was perfectly happy with those movies just watching the predators and the aliens fight. I felt like the humans being there did nothing but detract. From what I understand, there's a fair contingent of people that agree with me. Now, you can chalk that up to the writing or the acting that they came off as a hindrance to it. My feeling is, you know what, we just don't, they're just not necessary for those films to succeed. 
We'd probably be more happy watching a 90-minute action blockbuster without dialogue that just saw aliens and predators fighting. And yes, that means Michael Bay can't do it because there's no Shia LaBeouf for jokes about his parents eating pot brown. Ugh. Okay, so with... Okay, getting back briefly to Leatherface. He's a very recognizable character. He's also a very... Uh, he doesn't have the same thing that, you know, again, Jason and Michael had where they're indestructible. You know, Leatherface was frequently shown he could be hurt. He didn't feel the pain as much, but every time you saw Leatherface, you you knew, you know, he's just a man. He's just a human. If you can kill him, he's dead. You tend not to try and kill him because he's a big, pissed-off man with a chainsaw who will kill you if he gets the chance. But again, if you have someone with a gun who shoots Leatherface through the head at 50 yards, Leatherface isn't getting off. Jason, on the other hand, yes, he'll be back. Michael, yeah, he'll probably be back. Freddy, well, you're in the dream world anyway if you try to kill him, and he'll just reconstitute himself, or some dog will urinate on his grave, making it no longer holy. Again, Freddy gets his own podcast, wherein we will delve into all of that. But So Leatherface, if you were able to kill Leatherface, he's dead. That's it. C'est la vie. No more leather. Which doesn't detract from him being scary. Other should be a testament to that when it's done right, you don't need something supernatural. You just need someone scary. All right, but that is pretty much going to wrap... Oh, one brief other aside, as far as slasher movies go, I don't want to deal too much with this yet, because I feel this guy gets his own podcast, more or less, and that is uh, the first Predator movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Carl Weathers, all those good stuff. You know, for, just ladies and gentlemen, my opinion is now, probably always will be, the first Predator movie is a slasher, but instead of horny teenagers, you have badass commandos led by Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's still a slasher movie, it's just, again, set in the jungle instead of instead of a small neighborhood, and instead of babysitters ignoring the kids that they're supposed to be watching to have their boyfriends over, you have large muscle-bound commandos with impressive weaponry. They're still being slowly killed off, still have the thing you get first-person view from, you have the jarring musical score. Just trust me, it's a slasher movie as well. And I don't want to talk about him too much here because, again, Predator, I feel, gets his own podcast or he gets to tag team with the aliens. He probably gets his own, I know... Frequent contributor here, Mark Radlich, is a huge fan of the Predator as far as monster, movie monsters go. And for my money, he's also a very great slasher villain. So he'll probably get his own. But I just wanted to mention here that, yes, the Predator alien from the first Predator movie is, in fact, it is a slasher movie. He is a slasher villain. Still an awesome. All right, and that's going to do it for this one of Everyone Loves a Bad Guy. Like I said, next week we will be back, same time, 9 p.m. Eastern, this same channel on Blog Talk or if you want to listen live. I believe This might be going up on YouTube, I'm not sure. We here at the Radulich and Broadcasting Network, we're tinkering with changing format. Uh, we did our post-Breaking Bad series finale discussion on in a Google Hangout format. That wound up being posted to YouTube. I think the audio is here on Blog Talk as well. So I'm not sure how that's, you know, we'll be moving to that format in the future. I'm not sure how soon we will be making the full-on transformation. I know for the next little bit, until we get all the, until we get all the technical issues with, Google Hangout figured out where I'm going to be hosting most of mine here on Blog Talk. So the Ride Legend Broadcasting Network is on Blog Talk Radio. It's on iTunes, whatever that other one is. I can never remember the name. I Because I don't buy these things, folks. I'm sorry. I don't have an iPod or an iPad or a smartphone or any cell phone. So I don't go through various applications to download these things. I find them online, but if you for whatever means you go through find the, and you find these things, feel free to rate us. We always love feedback. We appreciate it here. All right. For my personal plugs, um if you're listening to this live, 
this Friday, uh, please go over to 411 Mania in the MMA Zone. Check out Locked in the Guillotine, which is my weekly column there. It goes live every Friday. Uh, this week, I look back at the signing of Anthony Pettis' little brother, Yay Nepotism, uh, the the release of Yushin Thunder, Thunder, Thundercats Ho Okami. I'm stealing that from Mark Radlich because, hey, why not? And I break down the upcoming fight card. Yeah, there is one this Wednesday, folks. Uh, UFC Fight Night 29, Jake Shields versus Damian Maya in the battle of who sucks the fun out of everything more. Should be a great little event there. And if you don't want to watch it live, uh, 411 Mania will have live coverage for you. I forget who's doing it. It's not me. So that likely means it's either Mark Radlich or John Butterfield. He tends to do some of the. He tends to do it when Mark doesn't. He's one half of the British Bulldogs. Him and Alex Rella, folks. They're our UK contingent, and we very much appreciate their work. I think it is Mark. And if it is, God bless you, Mark. You do a lot of work, and you don't get enough credit. Uh, this Sunday. 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the 411 Ground and Pound MMA radio show is back. We'll be looking back at news that came about this week, as well as previewing the aforementioned UFC Fight Night 29 card. I'm sure fun will be had, uh, probably not talking about that event because, ugh, it's nothing special. So tune into that. Again, those things are always worth listening to. Um, elsewhere on the Radulichin Broadcasting Network, uh, we are the home for the casual heroes for all of your pro wrestling needs. So if you're a fan of pro wrestling, the casual heroes, they're here. They do good stuff. They had Gangrel on as a special guest interview for their one of their last episodes. I don't think it was the last, the immediate last one. I think it was the one before that. But they're usually worth listening to, again, for your pro wrestling-related needs. Uh, this Tuesday... For uh, The Long Road to Ruin, I will be stepping in to guest host. Mark Radlich is taking the month off. Again, the man does a lot of work, and if he needs a month to decompress from stuff, I say we give it to him and we don't complain. But apart from hosting the Ground and Pound radio show on Sundays, he's taking the month off of podcasting, so I'm stepping in to kind of guest host The Long Road to Ruin, where... Sean Comer and I will be discussing the Hellraiser franchise over this month. The next, the first part will be the good movies. The second part will be the bad movies. So this week, tune in Tuesday, 9 p.m. Eastern, for the good stuff about for the good Hellraiser movies. There's three. It's not to say that all of the others don't. That's not to say none of them have no redeeming qualities. Again, except Revelations, which will get its own, I'm sure, like half-hour rant. That I will contribute to. I know Sean has a lot of adult language aimed at that one, and you know, so do I. Because Lord in heaven, it is awful. But this, but this week, this coming Tuesday, it's Hellraiser, Hellbound, Hellraiser Two, and Hellraiser Inferno, because they're good movies and should be discussed and celebrated. They're not perfect. I'm sure we'll get into some of that. But if you, but it's not the long road to ruin if you don't fall off the cliff at some point, folks. So the good stuff this week, the bad stuff, and the amusing rants. Next, there will be plenty of rant for that. Uh, I believe, uh, Mark usually plugs them, so I'll plug them on From the Right Radio every Thursday. There's the right hook, so fromtherightradio.com. Uh, good stuff. I'm not sure. I believe Mark's taking that. Uh, again, he's taking a break from po- from podcasting, but there tends to be fun, funny stuff there as well. It's Internet news, folks, and jokes about Internet news. So, good time. And I believe that concludes my plugs. Please make sure to visit 411 Mania for all of your general pop culture needs. A lot of great stuff over there. Uh, thank you for listening to this show, of course. Syndicated member of the Radlich and Broadcasting Network. I'm grateful for all of your listen because, again, if I just wanted to hear myself talk, I wouldn't have to inflict it on anyone who had access to the Internet, theoretically. So thank you for listening. If you agree or disagree with any of my views or opinions, feel free to let me know. If you want to find me on Twitter, 
You can find me at Winfrey. That's with two E's. I spell it differently than Oprah. Mine's a compound word, Winfrey MMA. So you can hit me up on Twitter to let me know if you agree or disagree. Again, the weekly column on 411mania.com is locked in the guillotine every Friday. If you want to leave a comment there, again, discussing this, that's fine and dandy as well. It doesn't have to be just be on the column I wrote, though. I appreciate that, too. So, again, yeah, let me know. I appreciate feedback. Uh, there's a chance everyone loves a bad guy. I might get its own Facebook page in the near future, and if so, I will begin linking that so people can hit me up there as well. But I believe that does it. That's all of my plugs. That's plugs for a couple of different people. Oh, since Sean Comer was unable to be here, I will plug his stuff as well. He's in the 411 Music Zone. He does, at the moment, he does career retrospectives. I forget what day it comes out, but looks back at various artists and their making of music and impacts and whatnot. Very good stuff. If you're a music fan, look it up. He does good work. And I think that's all of his plug. Again, Sean, if you're out, if you're listening, I apologize for not remembering all of them off the top of my head. Uh, I will use his catchphrase, don't dull your colors for someone else's canvas, and hope, again, you can listen to him. And he will have all of his plugs uh, coming up Tuesday on Long Road to Ruin, I'm sure, because they're his, and so he remembers them all. But that does it for me. I am your host, Robert Winfrey. Next week haunted locations various movies associated with them and in some cases specifically looking at the evil spirits that inhabit them as halloween month again see there i warned you i'm going to do it a lot the month of october the horror month rolls on here on everyone loves a bad guy haunted locations next week so fans of the amityville amityville horror series and whatnot will look forward we'll be there Sean should be here for that. If not, I will line someone else up because I'm fairly sure no one wants to hear me talk to myself for, wow, we're going on 90 minutes now. We're about at 80. All right, so I will end a tad early. I had scheduled this for 90, but I can end 10 minutes early. I don't feel there's anything else worth talking about for another 10 minutes. So for myself and just myself this week, uh, remember, ladies and gentlemen, the bad guys make you appreciate the good stuff. You can't have light. You can't appreciate lightness without a little shadow. You need contrast, folks. All right, that does it for me, and I will see you all here next week for this one. And again, I'm hosting Long Road to Ruin on Tuesday, so if you listen to both, I'll see you then. And again, of course, next week, Haunted Locations as October rolls on. Should be a great time. Thanks again to Tony Montana for the following sound clip to sign us out with, and I'll say goodnight. So say goodnight to the bad guys.